Welcome to LifeBeat. I'm your host, Chris Gast, Rights Life Michigan's Director of Communication and Education. I am flying solo again today. Uh, we just found out that the governor's order has been, state home order, has been extended till May 15. So that's uh, pretty much just rolling it back to the original state home order she had. So uh, really no change in our situation. I'm in my basement with very limited windows, uh, wondering when I can emerge from being the troll that I am, and not just because you youpers uh, are not so fond of us below the bridge. Um, today we have an interesting podcast. Uh, later on, I'd like to talk about, uh, since there's not much to talk about but the coronavirus, I thought we'd take a couple different tacks. Uh, later on, I want to talk about uh, rationing, medical rationing, how that involves the issue of euthanasia and assisted suicide. Uh, it's been a topic of discussion a little bit during uh, the coronavirus situation because of the original feared lack of ventilators. Um, and uh, I thought we'd talk about that pretty important issue that could affect anyone at any time. First, I'd like to address some comments that were made today on the floor of the Michigan Senate. So right now, uh, the Michigan Senate is in the process of voting on legislation that would uh, address the Governor Whitmer's emergency powers vis-a-vis uh, -vis the coronavirus. Now, um, beyond the abortion issue, it's not really uh, our issue to be concerned about. I know a lot of people out there feel really passionate that uh, we need the lockdown to continue as long as possible, or we need the lockdown to and as soon as possible, uh, on one hand, uh, concerned about the people who might die from the coronavirus. On the other hand, uh, concerned about the well-being and poverty of people who then might die uh, because of a lack of jobs. And uh, really, I'm not going to weigh in on uh, how to balance those two off. But uh, I do want to address a particular uh, exchange on the floor of the Michigan Senate involving uh, two senators, Senator Tom Barrett and Senator Curtis Hertel Jr. So, uh, what happened was a uh, Senator Curtis Hertel Jr. Uh, made a comment about uh, the sanctity of human life, and then Senator Tom Barrett came back on that and questioned why, if we value the sanctity of human life, are elective abortions still being performed under the governor's orders? Uh, while people are delaying chemotherapy or pacemakers. And Senator Hertel fired back, calling that a damn lie. Well, let's get into this a little bit. And, and this is a really important point for you to think about in terms of the credibility of elected officials who support abortion. And this exchange, I think, is about as perfect as an example as you can get of this problem. So, now I, I don't know anything about uh, pacemakers, but I have read news stories that people are being forced to delay their chemotherapy or cancer treatments because of the coronavirus. Uh, in the governor's order determining what is essential versus non-essential, the idea being what is essential is the person needs a surgery now to survive, whereas non-essential surgeries can be pushed back. Uh, one of the problems we're running into now is if the lockdown order continues indefinitely, 
then these non-essential surgeries are being pushed back. And what people might think of a non-essential surgery, um, let's take a let's take a knee replacement as an example. Now, you're not going to die if you don't get a knee replacement uh, in a month. It may have a long-term impact on your health years down the road. Uh, it's certainly inconvenient to be going around uh, with an extremely painful knee uh, that will continue deteriorating uh, without treatment. Um, you could consider that non-essential, although uh, why we <laughs> a person suffering in pain can be denied treatment, whereas a woman seeking an elective abortion can't is not denied. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, this non-essential essential, essential uh, category uh, is really confused because some surgeries that people would not consider to be uh, non-essential are deemed non-essential. So let me read from uh, this story from WDIV, Channel 4 in Detroit. Click on Detroit.com, uh, my old mainstay growing up in Ann Arbor for the morning news. And this story, uh, headlines, pretty self-explanatory. Coronavirus, parentheses, COVID-19, crisis forces breast cancer patients to put surgeries on hold. I mean, can you get any more clear than that? And as the story details that uh, the governor's order and forcing the uh, and, and even national guidelines about this uh, from the CDC and whatnot, that people, because of this coronavirus pandemic, are being forced to go without uh, breast cancer treatments and chemotherapy treatments. They're being forced to delay it. Now, uh, the theory being that uh, some of these treatments can safely be delayed uh, a few weeks, but we can't delay them indefinitely. And um, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, putting, you're taking an awful chance with people's lives, hoping that in a month their cancer will not have progressed. Uh, you know, cancer progression can be uh, predicted roughly um, and give you an idea how fast it progresses. But I'm sure many people who uh, have had cancer or who have had family members who have had cancer knows that uh, cancer is not a, a predictable thing that follows uh, a mathematical model or a, a weekly priority plan. Uh, the situation changes. And so because of this pandemic, because of the orders and situation, the hospitals are forced to tell people that, no, you can't get your chemotherapy right now. You can't get your treatment right now. And even though in, in most cases the hope is that those procedures can safely be delayed, the fact of the matter is that people will lose their lives because of that. It, it may be a small number. In the end, we may be saving more lives in terms of coronavirus infections. Again, I'm not going to get into the fine points of determining the cost and benefits there, but that's not a damn lie. This is a real-life experience that people have. And, and Curtis Hertel Jr., Senator Hertel, uh, is dismissing that as a damn lie. Well, I've got a damn lie from Senator Curtis Hertel that I'd like to revisit for you right now about laws and people not being able to receive treatment because of them. So, Michigan passed a law in 2013 called the Abortion Insurance Opt-Out Act. We did this through a petition drive. We collected more than 316,000 signatures uh, to pass this law. 
And what it was, was it was a defensive measure in the face of Obamacare, which had some requirements that basically was going to force people to be paying for insurance that covers abortion. So in essence, uh, a federal law was being was going to force some people to pay for abortions against their will, which is a violation uh, in the spirit of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, the Hyde Amendment didn't apply because Obamacare's provisions went around it. Um, the president issued this do-nothing executive order that said this money should be kept separate. It was all just flim-flam to try to get the last few votes to get the law to pass, which they did. However, the law did have an escape clause for states that said they can pass an opt-out law and that uh, states, the individuals in these states would not be forced to pay for abortions in their health plans. Now, since we're paying tax dollars on, on a federal basis, you know, you're still paying for insurance plans in other states, uh, like California, for example, where they do cover elective abortions. And you, Michigan taxpayer, are paying for abortions through that. But at least, as far as we could do in Michigan, we stopped that from happening. So we passed this Insurance Opt-Out Act, and the basic provision was that if you want your health insurance to cover abortion, then you have to choose that. You have to choose a plan with it. And uh, that's up to you. Now, the other side, uh, the abortion supporters and legislature objected, um, which, if you support abortion, I suppose is personally perfectly reasonable. Uh, their argument was a little funky. Um, they tried to really focus on, uh, they didn't really want to focus on the uh, elective portion of the debate. Uh, they wanted to talk about uh, issues of uh, rape and incest and um, suggest that, that you know no woman could ever predict that she's going to want to have an abortion so why would you make her have uh, you know make her select an insurance plan that covers that um, not exactly the most intellectual argument I mean uh, insurance plans are very comprehensive uh, and cover a lot of situations that you might not think of having or that you might think of having but you don't plan on having um, I don't plan on being dismembered alive, uh, but if you have a de death and dismemberment policy, you're not planning on being dismembered. You, you just have that in case something were to happen. Um, basically, because of the, the way that they went about it, really your choice in Michigan was force everyone to pay for abortions against their will or have only those people who want to pay for abortions uh, do that through their insurance plans. And uh, really... It's not even much of an issue. Your average first trimester abortion is well under the deductible. And actually, when you actually look at the effect of the legislation, and so their basic argument was women don't plan to have abortions ever, so you can't ever expect them to purchase a polity that has abortion coverage in it. But that actually really didn't happen. If you actually look at the numbers, uh, in 2012, before we passed this Abortion Insurance Opt-Out Act, uh, there were 739 abortions in the state of Michigan that were paid for by health insurance. The state actually collects this data. Uh, and it turns out 95% of women going into abortion facilities are paying for abortions basically with cash, self-pay. Uh, only this tiny small percent uh, back in 2012, 3.3%, which was 739 abortions, were paid for with health insurance. Fast forward to 2018. Well... There were 4.6% of the abortions were paid for through insurance, which was 1,174 abortions. So 
this law did, was not some sort of uh, offense against uh, women put in any situation. This didn't change the status quo, really. Uh, most insurance plans weren't paying for abortions back then, and most women didn't pay for The vast majority of women did not pay for abortions through insurance. More women are paying for their abortions through insurance today than they were before we passed that law. So the entire argument, the entire parade of horribles argument that they were coming up with um, was false. And, and this is often the case. Every time we pass a pro-life law, the excuse, the excuses for not passing it is always this parade of horribles that will end with uh, women dying or something along those lines. Every single time we pass a pro-life piece of legislation, these are always the arguments, and they never come true. They never come true. Their, their credibility is, is less than zero. In fact, they should have negative credibility. In these abortion debates in Michigan, our experience is, is if, a, if an abortion supporter, like Senator Curtis Hertel, who made that argument that I just described, uh, says that, then you should assume the opposite. Not only was are the situation that they're saying not going to come true, the opposite is usually going to come true. That's how bad their credibility is. But you know what? You know, people make mistakes. Uh, you can get a parade of horribles argument wrong. We, we've all done it where we've said this one bill would lead to other situations. It doesn't always happen. Uh, so one could be willing to forgive him that. However... Uh, Senator Curtis Hertel, uh, who does not like damn lies on the floor of the Senate, uh, went a bit further than that. So uh, when we were doing this uh, legislation, um, we're very careful. We're always very careful when we draft legislation. And if there's a problem that comes up, we're happy to address it. Um, very simply, early on in this, it didn't need to really be addressed, but... You know, it's very clear that every time we pass a law, we are careful with the definitions, and we wanted to be very careful in this case. However, during the debate on this legislation, uh, it became very clear that the pro-abortion legislators were not reading the legislation. And it may surprise some people that a lot of legislators don't read the legislation they vote on. But uh, they made this strange argument that the Abortion Insurance Opt-Out Act would prevent uh, women from having their treatment for miscarriage be covered by insurance. And by the time Senator Hertel was on the scene in the state senate introducing a bill to repeal this law, he repeated that ridiculous claim. That was a, an argument. And this wasn't just a brief aside. This was an, 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 an argument that Curtis Hertel somehow picked up on after the fact. They made this a major point during a legislative debate for this bill. Taken seriously, was reported on. I had uh, a legislative aide call me personally, kind of panic. Like, is this true? Is this true? Are you, is your, will your bill do this? No. Ugh, every time. It's so frustrating. Every time. Uh, in fact, our legislation says the exact opposite. As we said, we're very careful with definitions. The Abortion Insurance Opt-Out Act very clearly states this, that Elective abortion does not include any of the following, including, I lost it. Oh, this is a long paragraph. Our definitions are so great. Here we go. <laughs> 
Treatment upon, does not include treatment upon a pregnant woman who is experiencing a miscarriage or has been diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy. Let me repeat this to be very clear for our dear friend, Senator Curtis Hertel Jr. Elective abortion does not include any of the following treatment upon a pregnant woman who is experiencing a miscarriage or has been diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy. Boom. The end. Simple. The law says this law does not in any way restrict insurance coverage of miscarriage. That did not stop them making the argument before the bill was passed. And now listen to this. Now this is from June, okay, June of 2015. So this is a year and a half after this debate in the bill was passed. This is a press release. You can still find it on Senator Curtis Hertel Jr.'s website uh, saying uh, legislation to repeal controversial abortion law reintroduced. And in it, he repeats this same bogus claim. This is a direct quote from him in this press release. Quote, it's downright insulting to expect Michigan women to anticipate and financially plan for rape, incest, or a miscarriage. A, another, <laughs> another state representative, uh, the state representative who introduced the House bill, the companion House bill in it, was quoted this way, a woman experiencing a miscarriage should have the peace of mind knowing that she will receive safe and necessary medical care. This is a year and a half later when it was clear to everyone that this bill had no impact on women experiencing miscarriage. It's ridiculous, you know, for, for Senator Curtis Hertel to stand up there today and say, uh, it's a damn lie that the governor's coronavirus order regarding essential and non-essential medical treatment is meaning people can't get uh, chemotherapy and other treatments when he's perfectly fine years after the fact with no evidence repeating damn lies about abortion legislation. This is how stupid and brain dead this is. So my wife and I, we experienced a miscarriage this year. Uh, at, at no point was there some big bad meanies from Right to Life of Michigan. You know, our legislative director was not standing there in the doctor's room tut-tutting me and saying, no payment for you. Ridiculous. You know, I just can't stand when these people get up on their high horse and talk about these situations when, when they just gaslight people about our abortion legislation all the time. And the thing that gets me the most is it's never revisited. These parade of horribles, these outright lies, these sham arguments are just never re-examined a few years later. And they just let it, they just let them go. And it's ridiculous. And so I just thought, I saw that today and I just had to call out Senator Curtis Hertel. Um, you know, you just got a damn lie that anyone can still find online if they go look for it. That's obviously not true, and uh, I just I don't want to see you on your high horse. Thank you very much. All right, enough of that. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, topic that I was going to address today uh, regarding uh, euthanasia-assisted suicide, medical rationing, how these issues all fit together. Uh, what inspired me to do it was a tweet this morning from Charlie Camacy 
who is a professor of bioethics uh, with Fordham University, or at least I think he's still at Fordham University, uh, talking about a Pew Research poll uh, that was done a couple weeks ago, uh, asking the simple question, which patients should hospitals prioritize for critical care if ventilators are in short supply? So in this coronavirus pandemic a couple weeks ago, we were worried, do we have enough ventilators to go around? Who do we give ventilators to? And the question that they were asking was, should we be giving it to the patients most in need, which may mean fewer people overall survive, but doctors do not deny, deny treatment based on age or health status? Uh, or should they be given to patients more likely to recover, which may mean more people survive, but, then some, but that some patients don't receive treatment because they're older and sicker? And so if you look at the poll, it was kind of breaking it down by, um, he was kind of interested about, uh, the differences between religious people and non-religious people and how they view it. Uh, it's pretty 50-50 uh, if you look at it. Uh, people are kind of not sure about that. But I want to talk about uh, really a, a third category uh, where the rationing is much more explicit. That was a concern that was brought up uh, because of a policy draft out of Italy when they were in the midst of the pandemic. And it goes basically something like this. Should uh, older people simply be denied the ventilator uh, because of their age? Or should the disabled be uh, denied a ventilator simply because of their disability status? So this is not a new issue in uh, the realm of bioethics. So there is a measure out there uh, that has been used in some medical systems called a quali or a Q-A-L-Y, uh, basically uh, a quality of life, uh, you know, adjusted for years uh, based on how long you're going to live. So if you are a 20-year-old person and you have your whole life ahead of you, you get a certain score of qualies uh, because you're young and healthy. Uh, if you're 20 and disabled, uh, even if, if you might live as long, uh, you get less, fewer qualies. Uh, if you're 50 and healthy, uh, you may get even fewer qualies than those two individuals. And if you're 50 and you're disabled, well, you might as well just go ahead and die. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit there. Um, but there is this utilitarian strain in bioethics that deals directly with these issues and how it immediately comes into contact with euthanasia and assisted suicide is not only should these people with lesser quality of life not be given the same amount of medical care that other people will but uh, maybe instead we should pay for them to kill themselves and this is a situation that's happened uh, in Oregon when they explicitly started rationing uh, medical care through insurance payment at one point, they were sending letters out to people that said, we aren't going to pay for your medical treatment, but we'll pay to poison you so you can die. I mean, I guess if you're suicidal, thanks, but is that the message we want to send, you know, to suicidal people? Oh, just go ahead. Your life doesn't have any purpose. No, that's, that's terrible. And this utilitarian frame of thinking is really pernicious um if you <laughs> and this assumption that uh if you have a disability or you're less abled or you have a serious health condition 
that your life is less worth living or in even more sinister fashion, less worth to society. And so uh, I just want to let you know that in the midst of this pandemic that the Trump administration uh, was not simply lying down on this. Um, National Right to Life issued a press release uh, about a week ago where they were praising uh, the Trump administration and uh, some guidelines issued by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, dealing with this sort of rationing. And their basic statement was that the medical decisions made, including allocation of ventilators, um, should not be based on quality of life or relative value to society. So not including their disability, age, race, income level, or anything like that. It should be simply based on the objective medical evidence and express views of the patient themselves. So in other words, um, if you have a 95-year-old person come in um, who has a really good chance of surviving, if they're given a ventilator, and you have a 25-year-old person um, coming in who has a very poor chance at surviving, then that 95-year-old uh, should be given the ventilator. Uh, they should not be denied it simply because they're 95. Uh, and that's an extreme example, but uh, you know it's 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 almost impossible to really measure the value of a life based on a, a quali or some sort of other score where you just try to take a, a human being of, of, with infinite value and sort of chop them up and see you know whose life really has more value. Um, so to get back to Charlie Camsey's post. Uh, you know, that's, it's a hard distinction when you have an issue like this coronavirus that so uh, that's impacts the elderly in a, such a disparate way as, as opposed to younger people and, and especially children. Um, and should, you know, should we be giving ventilators to patients most in need or patients most likely to survive? So when it comes to the coronavirus, that might by default end up being the younger patients get most of the ventilators because the... Uh, the death rates are just so large for the older and, and, and firm. Um, but really, uh, I wish they would include that third category in the poll to really get a good idea of um, you know, where the public stands on that because sadly there are a lot of people out there who embrace this. Uh, you know, and that's why we have euthanasia and doctor-prescribed suicide, assisted suicide, and this advocacy out there is because... A large chunk of our society has bought the idea that there are some lives that are unworthy of life. And that is a very, very dangerous view that has led to all manner of injustices uh, and deaths. And so uh, it's good that we have a Trump administration uh, that's staffed by people who think deeply about these issues and are making sure um, that we're not explicitly, you know, taking medical uh, medical care away from uh, the elderly or the disabled, um, but that might not always be the case. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden, one of Joe Biden's health advisors, is Ezekiel Emanuel, who, to his credit, has uh, you know rejected uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, but who has also said that I I hope I die uh, in my 70s, and implying that the elderly are not worth it. And so uh, it's really important that we keep an eye on this because we never know when a situation like this coronavirus is going to happen again and suddenly you find yourself 
in that sort of situation or any other medical challenge that might happen to you and you might be denied care simply because of who you are and not based on uh, your actual chances of survival. All right, that's all the time we have for this edition of Life Beat. Join us again in two weeks. Stay safe, everyone.